1: James Blake is one of the greatest tennis players in recent American history. In 2006, he was number four in the world. Throughout his 12-year career, he won 59% of his matches, including a win against Roger Federer and three wins against Rafa Nadal. He's also a super nice guy who went to Harvard. His life is a movie. I remember when James first exploded at the U.S. Open when the world got to see his huge forehand, which was amazing to watch. So exciting. I've been playing tennis all my life, and it was a thrill to watch James's career from the beginning to the end. I grew up playing at Sportsman's Tennis Club in Dorchester, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit club that has a mission of teaching kids to play tennis. So everything it does is about getting more money to help the kids learn how to play for less money. When I was a junior there in the 70s, they brought in Arthur Ashe to speak to us kids. 17 years ago, Venus Williams came by and gave a clinic when she was the reigning Wimbledon and U.S. Open champion. And earlier this summer, James Blake came through for a day of teaching kids tennis. I got to hit with him for a minute, which was really exciting, but more exciting was interviewing him for this show right on court five in front of a few hundred people. It's James Blake on Toray Show. What did you do as a junior that really worked, that really helped propel you to
0: a professional level? Um, Well, I'll I'll let Brian answer it too, but I would say part of our strategy... um, was to think a little more long-term as opposed to I was 11 or 12 years old and I switched to a one-handed backhand and I didn't have a huge loopy strokes um, and my dad and my coach definitely always stressed that 12s aren't as important 14s aren't as important the results right now aren't as important as developing a game that will be successful later in life and I didn't want to buy into that at the time because I was stubborn and I wanted to win every single match every time I played. Um, Brian has plenty of stories about that, but I don't think we'll have time to get into those. So, um, <laughs> but we'll I, um, have time. <laughs> but I, um, I always thought of playing a little bit more aggressive, even probably when I shouldn't have when I was so little and it wasn't the best way to win right then. It was really the goal of getting better. and i It's tough for me to admit, but... Um, The adults uh, and the ones that know tennis actually know what they're talking about. Um, You know, Brian preached that, and I wasn't as good when I was 12, 13, 14. And then as I grew and kind of grew into my game, um, it made a huge difference. And I I saw myself sort of passing a lot of the people that I thought uh, I would never pass or that had more talent or that were bigger than me um, when we were younger and had different styles of play that were really focused on winning at the time. I think what helped me so much was kind of, thinking about the bigger picture and just thinking about improving. I mean, it, it, not egotistically, but do you remember the moment when you were like, damn, I'm really good at this. <laughs>
1: and not like to um, pat yourself on the back, but like, I,
0: I could go like global with this. It, it, it took a lot longer, I would say for me, probably than some other people. Cause I was shocked when I first um, played in the junior U S open and they gave me a wild card into the U S open qualifying. And I thought I was going to get killed when I played there. And I, lost a relatively close match to a guy that was seated in the qualifying and was shocked that I was that close and there were agents around and talking to me and I didn't know why they were, I was planning on going to college. I had no thoughts of playing pro at that point. I didn't really have any experience playing pro tennis. So um, I still, I remember telling my brother, I really went to college thinking I was going to play number four on the team Um, Hmm. because I watched my brother, my brother went to Harvard. I followed him there and I went and watched him a whole lot. And I thought, some of the players he played with, I thought they were so good. There's no way I'm ever as good as them. I couldn't, couldn't imagine it. So these, in my mind, I didn't think I could ever get to those top three levels. And then, lo and behold, I get to school, and the first rankings came out, and I was four in the country. So I realized then, uh, maybe I'm shortchanging myself a little bit. Maybe I'm a little better. And then, of course, I went the other way and got a little bit of a big head because I thought I was that good. And then I got knocked down to size. Brian was good at that. My brother was good at that. They knocked me down to size and made me realize that I'm somewhere in between as good as I thought I was, and I wasn't as bad as I thought I was either. So.
1: Well, Brian, you want to you, you pump
0: the athlete
1: up, right, and give him the confidence. But James is saying like, that the humility was also
2: important. So where do you find the balance between pumping him up but also keeping him humble? And that's where coaching, it's, it's, uh, you really have to look at the individual. James... He never had too much trouble thinking that he was going to win and he was great and he was the best. And even when he was 12 years old, you playing with 18-year-old kids, he'd come off, I can't believe I lost this guy. I can't believe this This is ridiculous. (laughs) Or I'd be hitting with him and he'd be like absolutely shocked. So it kind of depends on who you're coaching. I didn't have to worry too much about James uh, thinking he was good enough because he always had that, I thought, you know, like I can do it, I can do it. But his problem, like a lot of kids, is he used to get so frustrated because along with that comes a temper. If you think you should win all the time against everyone, every time you get frustrated, you get angry, and uh, so I thought that was his problem. So I would always try to, you know, let him know that it's okay to lose, and other people are good, and you know, try to take pressure pressure off them, and I not mean, always think he had to beat everybody.
1: That that comment makes more sense in terms of understanding the Patrick Rafter moment, right? Which is the big moment in your career, right? Mm -hmm. You lose a close one to Rafter. It was 2001, right? Like early pros. Yeah. And at the net, he says something really positive to you that gives you... What did he say, and what was the impact on you?
0: Uh, Well, he said, um... Sorry, that got a lot louder. Um, he, He said, um... The only difference was you didn't believe you could win today, um, and he was, at that time, maybe three in the world, and uh, it was probably my first time playing on a big center court in Cincinnati, and I just won, a, for me, a big match, beating a top ten player in Arno Clement, so um, it, it meant a lot to me that he would take the time to say that, because I did, like Brian says, I had confidence, I felt like I was a good player, I felt like I was learning, I felt like I was getting better, but I wasn't positive I belonged in the same locker room as a guy like Pat Rafter, someone that had had so much success. And for him to say that, it meant a lot to me. And from then on, the rest of that year kind of propelled me from about 150 in the world to finishing that year probably around 60. And it was kind of a a straight shot up after that, um, thanks to, in large part, the confidence that I gained. And just believing, hey, if I play this way, if I have a good day, I can contend with guys that are top ten, top five in the world, and not think I have to play absolutely perfect just to stay in it with them. And um, it, it really helped, and it, it says a lot about him um, more than more than it does about anything else. That he's such a great champion, and was still took the time to, to be kind to someone that he didn't have to be.
1: I mean, they always say that the difference between like a hundred and ten is really mental, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing that the guy who's a hundred can't do that the guy who's ten can do, right? They're similar, right? Yeah. So help us understand, what is it really like like inside your mind, the mental thing that you're doing to get to four in the world that
0: others are not able to do? Well, I'd say one of the biggest differences between being 100 and being 10 or four um, is doing it day in and day out. The guy that's 100 in the world usually has a high top level, can still play unbelievable on a day, but just that belief that they can do it and they can keep doing it. They can can get up a break on a guy that's top 10 in the world and not let it slip away, not panic, not change their plans, just play within themselves and keep playing that level. And the other difference, I think, mentally, is finding ways to win when you're not at your best. The gap between when I was playing my absolute best and when I was playing my worst... Was so much smaller when i was top 10 in the world than a guy that's 100 in the world because they can have a great day and play their best but when they're not playing their best that level can drop so much more so you find ways to win matches when you're not at your absolute best and that gives you more opportunities you know every time you win that first round when you're not playing your best but then something clicks in on the practice court the next day and you play great you win that tournament that can change your year that can change um your season so those kind of opportunities and giving yourself those opportunities is a huge difference between the guy that's ranked 100 and the guy that's ranked top 10 because they don't give themselves as many opportunities.
1: Brian, speak to that as well. Like, what is the what is the player who gets the top 10 mentally doing that the other guys are not doing?
2: Well, one thing, James, James was unbelievable at preparing, and everything had to be perfect. You know, sleeping right, eating right, drinking right, getting everything in order and he was just ready to go. There's always one or two things that were gonna go wrong that you couldn't control, but the thing that he could control, he was unbelievable at, at, at having him in line and ready to go. And deep down, also, it's like, you always had that belief, I think, that, uh, that you can do it and that you had what it, what it took. And one of the things that I was surprised about, I used to ask myself when I played, I got to 600 in the world, and I used to think if I had to Clap talent, for that. <laughs> 600 in the world, that's amazing. I used to think, if I had the talent, physically, if I had more talent, could I have done it mentally? I always ask myself that, and, uh, and after watching James on tour those years, as strong as I thought I was mentally, sadly, I think I failed in comparison, because when you're on tour and you're playing every week, weekend, and week out, it's unbelievable what the players go through as far as traveling and uh, all the time differences, and you forget you watch them play on TV when they're not feeling well or they're sick or they had a fever. And James, he would be sick as a dog. I remember him coming to me before, before a handful of matches like, I feel terrible, I didn't sleep at all last night, I'm, I'm, I can't eat a thing, I'm just going to put my head down. And he would go out and sometimes still beat people his exact level. Well, I used to think, how in the world did he pull that off? But just that, that mental toughness that you get from preparing and just you know, focusing and doing your best every day, it was truly amazing to watch.
1: I mean, getting to four in the world is an incredible achievement. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Respectfully, can Thank you, you uh, can you assess what you needed, what you needed more to get to three or two or one? Like, what,
0: what was what was just out of reach? Don't say that, coach. <laughs> <laughs> Just found a better guy. No. Um, well, honestly, the biggest thing for me was Roger. Roger was the only guy who, when I played against him, when I was four in the world and I felt like I played well, I, aside from Roger, take him out of the equation, I didn't care who was on the other side of the net. I felt like I could win. I felt like I would beat anyone when I'm playing well. Of course, I, there weren't, it wasn't every single day I felt like I was playing well, so if I was not playing my best, I felt, OK, I could be a little vulnerable today. Maybe not my favorite surface if I'm playing on clay, but I felt like I could beat anyone in the world. I had great results against Rafa at that time. The number three player in the world was Davy Danko. I beat him every time I played him at that at that at that year and that stage. Um, so I didn't feel like it was it was that different. I didn't feel like I was very different from them at the time, um, but I felt like I was different than Roger. Roger was the only guy who I played. I could play my absolute best. I could play great and he could show me there was a different level. And that was, to me, he, that's why for me, he's always, he will, in my mind, be the greatest of all time. And it was just special to watch. And I didn't want to admit it at the time. I didn't want to think about it, but there were times when I was playing well and there was, it felt like there was nothing I can do.
1: I mean, we've all watched and marveled at Roger, Roger, but when you're baseline to baseline,
0: what is that experience like when you're out there and his ball is coming at you? Uh, it's frustrating. Um, <laughs> and you, you also want to hate him, but he's also one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, so you can't even hate him that much um, <laughs> like you want to. But he, he was, I would look at him and watch him play and think, okay, what can I do well? A lot of times when you're out there game planning, you know, if things aren't going well, you have to change your game plan. What can I do to affect him? And I would think about just about every stroke, like, well, I'm looking to get four hands but wait, if he gets a forehand, his is somehow even better than mine. So, okay, I'll get it, you know, maybe backhand to backhand, but that's kind of his weakness, kind of my weakness, but he somehow manages to hit his a little better, defend a little better off his, and, you know, I can run down everything. I can get to a ton of balls and play defense. Well, so can he, and my serve wasn't exactly a strength, but it was pretty good, and his serve is unbelievable. So, all right, what do I do now? (laughs) And it, it was unbelievably frustrating because I would think, I can play aggressive, I can be I can be offensive, but then the second he got a forehand, he would turn it around and be able to be just as aggressive and be able to impact me even more than I was impacting him. And um, he just was, you know, like I said, he had that other gear. I mean, there were times when I felt like I was being forceful, I was being aggressive, I was able to affect him for a short period of time. And then he would be able to flip it around and, and be able to be so effective. So it was just frustrating, um, you know, I, Watching him, I'm marveling at him. When you're across the net, you don't want to marvel at your opponent. You want to beat him. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was definitely frustrating, but um, you know, couldn't be a nicer and better ambassador for our sport. So you beat him once? I did. In yes. Beijing? Yes. At the Olympics? That was a great film. Thank you. <laughs> yes. what did you do right that day? Um, it was one of those days that everything seemed to be, seemed to be going right. I was playing really well. Um, at the Olympics, when you got the USA on your chest, it's something you take pride in, and it feels a little different. It really, I never felt a lot of pressure playing tennis, because it's what, I, like Brian said, I prepared. I always wanted to be prepared. I felt like I was prepared for every situation. Olympics and Davis Cup had that little different feel, because you're playing for your country, you're playing for a whole team, other people really care about your results. Because uh, even if I want to be egotistical, there is still only probably five or six people that cared if I won or lost my normal matches it was Brian my family a couple of my friends and you know everyone else it's not really going to affect their life but Davis Cup and Olympics you have a real team you have a, this sense of uh, camaraderie and so playing there felt special and then beating Roger at that point when I did feel like he was the greatest and especially winning seconds in a tiebreaker when you knew tiniest tiniest margin if he comes back his confidence could surge and you know it could he could show me that next gear and nothing i could do but um, I was able to hold my nerve keep it together and play as, as well as I possibly could that day and it was uh, it was really special and you know, s- similarly he walked up to the net and didn't say he played bad or make excuses He so said congratulations really happy for you keep going and you know he's uh, definitely a gentleman so I was, I was but I, it's something that I'll always think about that in my opinion is the greatest of all time and I got to beat him on a stage when he really cared I didn't beat him at a 250 level event you know far far away where he might not have been up for it. This is the Olympics. He wanted to win gold. He showed it. He still won gold in the doubles. He stuck around to win that. And he wanted to win the gold in singles. And sorry, Roger, I took one I took one away from you. <laughs>
1: you had a bunch of great matches also against Nadal. Yeah. Another one of the greatest players of all time. Yeah. Um, and you had a little more success with Nadal yeah. than Federer. Yeah. And I'm sure that ball, I mean, that ball was coming in like by your ear, right? Yeah.
0: I actually loved playing him. I still remember the first time I played him, I'd been out for a whole year during his kind of rise. Um, so when I got to play him, he was two in the world, and I had never, never even hit with him, never seen him play. And um, I still remember warming up on Arthur Ashe Stadium, and the first ball I hit, I fed a ball in, and he absolutely ripped a forehand. Everyone knows, you know, he gets so aggressive and so hyped right before the match. And he hit it as hard as I've ever seen anyone hit a forehand, especially in warm up. And I just said, oh man. This could be trouble. I'm going to find that backhand as much as I can. And um, But I just remember that whole, that whole time thinking, you know what? He's the one that has the pressure on him. He's two in the world. He's in a big stadium. He's used to this, but he's you know this is my crowd. I, I love playing in the U.S. Open. I had all my fans cheering for me, and he's got the pressure on him. I'm going to play free. I'm going to play aggressive. And against him, my style was extremely effective. Taking time away from him, he was uh, at that point serving – 80 to 90% into my backhand side. So I was able to kind of sit on it and just be aggressive with that return. Um, He wanted to just get the point started and I was not gonna let him get into that rhythm. I was gonna take that time away from him, be aggressive, get into net, do everything I could to disrupt him. And uh, I mean, that day was pretty special. I remember it really well. And I actually remember thinking about it as it got to the end, that it happened much easier than I really thought it was gonna be because I I thought, this is going to be an absolute dogfight to the end. He's never going to let let up at all. There's going to be nothing, and all I was doing was focusing on like I need to get one point closer to the end. I need to get one more point here. And before I knew it, I remember thinking that at like two one in the in the fourth set, and before I knew it, I won it six two. And even the last game, I want I held it love, and I remember thinking. I, need, I was up two. I was up two breaks at the time, and I was still thinking, I need to win every single point. I cannot give him an inch, or he's, you know, he's such. Everyone has seen and marvelled at how incredible his fighting spirit is. Like, if we give him one free point, he can come back and turn this whole thing around. So I was so focused on every point, and before I knew it, I was, I was celebrating, and I was done. And he was walking up to the net, and I was, I was a little surprised, but then I had success against him two more times um, the next two years, and. And then uh, I played him a few more times after, unfortunately, my knee wasn't as good, but I still loved playing him. I, I loved the um, sort of the chess match between him because he wanted to have time. I wanted to take time away. He had the, those long strokes. He eventually kind of shifted his um, his serve a little bit more to not give me the free looks at, my, at all the backhands, and it was fun. And he's another great competitor, great person on and off the court, so I always had a ton of respect for him. When I, when I beat him, he said in the press conferences, he played too good. When... I lost to him, he said, it was a great match, I played really well, you know, he was very, very respectful, always.
1: It's so great to hear how you're thinking and changing your thought pattern during the match, and I think young players can think about you know the, the thought you need to have during the match. A lot of people don't realize a critical part of the match is in between the points, mm-hmm. and how you recover physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. When you have a disappointing point, mm-hmm. What are you doing internally to get ready to put it behind you and go into the next point without that disappointment?
0: Well, Brian can talk a little bit about the fact that I improved, I think, I hope, a lot um, from when I was a kid at doing, at not being able to do that at all. At one thing going wrong and it completely snowballing and being out of control and me being so much of a perfectionist that I was at one point would spiral me out of control as being so frustrated. So on tour, for the most part, being much better about it's one point, put it behind me, do what you need to do, and focus on this next point, that's all I can do. I can't control what happened there. And I would still get upset. I mean, there were still a couple of racket tosses, a couple of four letter words probably that were said under my breath, and but I was I, I felt like I was pretty good about being upset for a second about missing a shot, to now thinking Five seconds later, okay, well, that's done. What do I do next on this next one? And how do I recover and how do I play better? Or give myself that same opportunity and next time I won't miss it. Um, So I felt like I did a much better job on tour about just moving on. And I actually played very quickly in between points. I was probably one of the faster players if you look at the average time in between points. And I liked that and I thought of that, for me, I thought of that as an advantage because that's how I trained. When I'm out there practicing, I play and I get right back to it, and I feel like I recover. I felt like I recovered quickly. So if you're if you have to play up to the server's pace, you have to play at my pace, and my pace is fast, yeah. and that's what I'm very used to. So if you're not used to that, then that's to my advantage. And I just wanted to make myself comfortable because that's the way I played, and that's the way I felt comfortable. Um, and that definitely, I think, helped me in the long run because I think other players may have had trouble with putting a bad point behind them, and I could yeah. run off four or five points in a row, and them being upset about one point. And me just playing, playing very quickly and putting it out of my mind.
1: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name,
0: Elizabeth Taylor.
1: I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Take us inside your head during the first half of what most people will say was your greatest match or your most exciting match, 2005, U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. You take the first two sets from Agassi in the quarters. Mm -hmm. You're up a break in the third set. What are you thinking? What are you doing right in that first half where it's really working?
0: Well, I was... Similar to Nadal, I was taking time away from him. He's so good at, um, at taking time away from his opponents, standing on the baseline. I felt like it was a, a little bit of a, um, a battle for who's gonna back off that baseline. And I was able to do it, almost feeling like I was overpowering him early. And that's not easy to do. For anyone that's gotten to play Andre, that's, it, it, his, his ball striking, even if his mobility isn't as good as some of the other top players, his ball striking more than makes up for that. Um, So I felt like I was being aggressive and doing that. And then he just went on a run from there. Um, From the point when I was up two sets and a break, I felt like if I let up 1%, that was the difference. Because all he did was he got confident. He felt like, because I I feel like we came into that match. Did you let up? I don't feel like I let up at all. But I felt like if my level dropped a tiny bit, he took it and his level upped. And I think part of that had to do with we both came into the match knowing there was a ton of hype. It was. I was just coming back from injury and illness. He was towards the end of his career, both of us, like, who's going to make this run? Either one of us making it to the finals was kind of a, a storybook kind of, a kind of situation. So a lot of times those matches don't live up to the hype. But this one obviously did in the end. But at the beginning, I think um, I was being so aggressive, he probably felt like he had all the pressure. He'd been there a ton of times before. And then when he's down two sets and a break, I feel like he freed up. And just said, you know what? I'm going to absolutely go for broke. And any any backhand he, hit, he had, he absolutely ripped the cover off it. His forehand is the one that can tend to go off at times. It was locked in then because he was swinging so freely, I felt. And then he was doing what I had done to him for another two sets. And then, you know, we got to the fifth set tiebreaker. And, um, I, I mean, I, I have not rewatched it since I retired. I haven't. Um, but I do remember someone telling me, and it uh, makes sense, there wasn't one unforced error in that tiebreaker. We were hitting winners. Um, that level of tennis was really high, and I remember thinking at the time that every point, I need to come up with something special. Just every time, I need to come up. I need to... I'm not just getting balls in play. I can't fall back on... This is a huge moment. The person across the net's going to get nervous. He's going to think, oh, and he's going to get tight. I know this is Andre Agassi. I need to win this match. I knew... and. Vice versa, I think. I, I've talked to him about it, and I, I think he felt like he had to come up with something special to beat me too, because neither one of us was going to give that match away. And I don't feel like either one of us do, did. I think he earned it. I think I had you know plenty of opportunity to earn it, but I will still always remember uh, that I think it was the six-all point. I, he had a drop shot after a long rally, and still question that's my one uh, one issue with that match tactically is I went back to his backhand side when I got up to a drop shot and I should have made him hit his his less uh, reliable shot and gone across to his forehand. But other than that, I don't think there's too many things I, I could have done very differently in that match to, to change the outcome. He he stepped up and he's a great champion. He's a Hall of Famer for a reason. He won that match and he earned it. I I don't feel like I, I let it slip or, or anything. I don't think about any of those kind of Moments as choking moments or anything. No. The only thing I've ever thought about is I should have gone cross court on that six all one. <laughs> but otherwise, other than that, <laughs> other than that, uh, and I also remember saving a match point with one of my best forehand, forehand inside in. Um, and he, ta- he I think he talked about it in his book that it was nowhere near where he thought I was going to go because he didn't think I had that shot. And then I also remember telling my friends afterwards, I can't believe. What, you know, why can't I win a match like that? And one of my best friends said, a match like that or a match like that? Like, that's the best match I've ever seen in my life. What do you mean? There hasn't been any others like that. It's like, okay, I guess that's a good point.
1: <laughs> what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus... A $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash Thrivemarket.com slash On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is mostly Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Brian, what are your memories of that match?
2: I just remember James came out. Swing and going for broke instead up, up two sets and, and a break. And then you can see that Andre told himself, I'm just going to swing for the fences and let it fly. I'm, not, I'm now the underdog. I'm not the favorite. And uh, I think Andre said in his book, that was one of the best matches he ever played, which I think, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was, just too, it was just too good. Two great players playing great. God, two
1: great Americans playing great late at the US Open. <laughs> That does not happen so much anymore. You're also a commentator. What's going on with American tennis? And and just tennis in general, it seems like we have a generation that has been up there for like 15 years, right? This big four. Mm -hmm. And you would think the next generation would have come and supplanted or now there's somebody else, somebody drop off. But we've been, you know... Like we've seen Kobe come and go, and it's still Federer, Nadal, (laughs) right? We see Tiger come and go; it's still Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Like, what's going on?
0: It's. um... And
1: what's the matter with American tennis?
0: (laughs) Yeah, those are two different questions. I'll go with the I'll go with the the positive one first. The Roger, Rafa. I'm sorry.
1: Let me. me, I'm sorry. I hear Andy Murray in my head. Let me amend. What's wrong with American male tennis?
0: Yes, because the American women are kicking ass right now. Absolutely, absolutely. That is. Very true, and they have been kicking ass for a long time, Um, and their longevity needs to be appreciated. Venus and Serena have been absolutely incredible. Um, And Sloan, and Madison, and Coco, and... It's incredible what they've done, and they've had such a great run. But for the men, I think it seemed like there was almost an aspect of being spoiled with the fact that you had Sampras, Agassi, Chang, Courier, Todd Martin, Mel Washington, uh, these guys were unbelievable in this era. So then Andy and myself and Marty Fish and Robbie Gennepri came along and we kept getting a question of how come you guys aren't Andre and Pete? How come you guys aren't even better? And now I think they're missing us a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, the next group, uh, group is getting how come you're not Andy and James? And um, I think it just goes in lulls at times and we have been in a generation where the Grand Slams have been very much dominated by four players. And it's a difficult time. And the few players that have snuck in and won a few, Del Potro, um, Stan Wawrinka has given himself a Hall of Fame career now by getting three. But it's been really difficult. As far as American men's tennis, I think it was in a little bit of a lull. There's um, you know, great individual results from John Isner. Jack Sock has had a couple great performances. Uh, Steve Johnson has had a couple good ones. Uh, Sam Querrey has shown promise at times. But it just isn't the same when you're expecting Andre and Pete and Roddick um, because I think a lot of them made it look easier, seem easier than it was, but it's very difficult, especially now how global the game has become, for any one country to dominate. Uh, I think a lot of people thought Spain was going to dominate forever when they had Rafa, Verdasco, uh, Lopez, um, Ferrer, Moya, uh, Albert Costa. It it just looked like there was, uh, they, they called it the Spanish Armada. They had... 20 guys in the top hundred and you look now and they're aging and coming up behind them is only Pablo Carreño Busta. And um, I think it's just very difficult to, there's, there's always going to be little cycles. I'm very excited about the crop uh, coming up now, the 18, 19, 20 year olds and Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo, Riley Opelka, uh, Jared Donaldson, Stefan Kozlov. Um, these guys have a lot of talent. They get along well, they're going to push each other. And I think it's going to take a while. I don't think you're going to see any more 19-year-old Grand Slam champions. Alexander Zverev is an absolute beast, uh, beast, and he's incredible for what he's done. But he also had a very unique situation. When he was 13, 14 years old, his brother is 10 years older than him, Misha, and he was on tour. So he got to see the pro lifestyle from 12, 13, 14 years old, and he was training with him and training at the same place I was training in Saddlebrook. And he was an absolute workhorse as if he was a pro at about 14 years old. So he is beyond his years in maturity, and in level, and in tennis years. So he's uh, somewhat special It's having success at 20 years old. But you're not going to see guys, I don't think, competing for Grand Slams at that young age. So I want these young guys to give, give themselves a little bit of time. And in three, four years, I want to see what the careers of Taylor Fritz, Franz Tiafoe, Jared Donaldson, and Opelka look like. Because I think they have the chance to be very good, whether they're Grand Slam champions, one in the world, top five in the world. That remains to be seen. A lot of that has to do with what's between the ears and yes, um, and what they can do and if they can deal with the pressure. I mean, every step you take, there's more and more pressure and there's whether you can deal with it if you're, you can deal with it at 50 in the world, but then you get 20 in the world and you're getting more and more attention. You're getting... Uh, more media scrutiny, you're getting all you're expected to win all these matches It's become that you become afraid to lose what you have mm-hmm. I think part of it is that, I mean I went through it I think a lot of people go through it, the first time I was around 20 in the world, uh, I got up there and then I started thinking okay, I just need to play okay, and I'll beat this guy that's ranked 60 in the world, I just need to play alright and it's just like in football, the prevent defense it just prevents you from winning, and I was doing that, I probably did that for I think three four months ish uh, at least and then realized i can't do this to get me to where i got to i was hungry i had to be hungry and hungrier than the person on the other side of the net and i had to work harder than them i had to be more aggressive i had to want to beat them and want to prove myself every single day so now just because i'm 20 in the world doesn't mean i've done anything doesn't mean i've proven myself to them because they're just as hungry now to take my spot. So I need to find a way to get just as motivated to beat the guy that's 80 in the world as I did when I was the guy 80 in the world, and so that was a way of kind of tricking yourself. And there's some guys that hit top 10 and then never see it again because they hit that point and then they never really regained that motivation, that hunger, that passion to get there and to to have the same free attitude that they got that got them there.
1: So uh, coming to the end, but I got two issues that I want to talk about, really important okay. things. Okay. In uh, was it two thousand five when you injured yourself? Uh,
0: 2004.
1: Two thousand four. Two thousand four. Right. Yeah. Well, but but you, you hit the net pole. You hurt your spine, and you get shingles. Right, and your father passes away. Mm-hmm. But you played the best tennis of your career after that. Yeah. How did you rebound from these like this trio of personal, just sort of like job, like just you know just all this stuff dumped on you? Yeah. And then go back and play
0: far better. I would say it was. It was a couple things. Um, one was, I felt like I was someone that had a good perspective on life before. Um, just as everyone thinks in the moment they're doing a lot of things right. And then when you look back, you realize you could have been better. And that time off, that time spent with my family, with my friends, possibly the, the, the prospect of never playing tennis again, it made me appreciate it to an even greater level. I mean, I'm rational enough to know even when I started at 20, 21 years old that a tennis player has a finite career. You're not going to play this when you're 8. You're not going to play professional tennis when you're 45 years old. So, to try to appreciate it, but until it's until it was taken away from me and the the possibility of never playing again was real it gave me a new perspective on I really need to appreciate this and I really need to do everything I can to, to have the right attitude and not waste a day, not waste a practice, not waste a match, not do anything that, I, that is going to be detrimental that I'm going to regret because one day this is going to be gone. And I think that attitude, once I got back, helped me a little bit. The other thing was when I was sick, I couldn't really do much of anything. Um, and Brian being, you know, I... Uh, he talked about coaches, coach and player relationships. He was in the hospital room with me when I broke my neck. He stayed with me, flew home with me, and then when I was sick, I really couldn't do anything. There were days that as I was starting to get back, I could get out on the court for five minutes. That would be it. The, my face was paral- was half paralyzed and my eye was wide open, so I couldn't even like stand being in the sun. I couldn't pick up the ball, so it was just... It was just an exercise in getting me out of the house, and he would do that. He would come over to my house and get me out for five minutes for any amount of time. And then as I started getting better and better, we started making a concerted effort to think about things that you can work on, that you don't get the time to work on when you're normally playing tournament after tournament. We hit, I can't even tell you how many backhands of me being more and more aggressive on my backhand side and when i got the, when i got back on tour i was a little bit more confident in my weaker side and having that kind of confidence gave me a little bit more motivation gave me a, made me feel a little bit better when i got on the court and say hey this guy can't pick on this side anymore i can be uh, i can be more aggressive i can let it let it be a little bit more free and play aggressive on my backhand side too and so i think that made a difference i focused a little bit more on nutrition after that i, I just did a lot of the things that maybe i hadn't been as focused on i, I honed in on them a little bit more. Um, and so that time off ended up being better for me in my, in my whole career.
1: One last thing, you know, we all saw the video of you getting tackled by this NYPD officer. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened to you. You didn't do it, right? But, but it changed your life. How yeah. did that moment change your life?
0: Well, that moment was um, a bit surreal, almost like it was in slow motion. And... Um, It changed me because as an athlete, you're taught to walk it off, be a tough guy. You know, everything's okay. And in the moment, that's what I wanted to do. As soon as the whole encounter was over, I wanted to walk away, probably never talk about it, never even mention it. And then I called home, I called my wife and told her what happened and um, she was as upset or more upset than I was. And when she said, what if that was me? What if that was the kids? What if something like that happened to someone you loved? And then I immediately went from feeling like I want to walk away from this to saying, this cannot happen again, and what can I do about it? Because most people that this happens to don't have a voice. They can't then call a newspaper and tell them what happened. They don't have access to the video. They don't have access to a lawyer. They don't have the resources to help them um, speak up and speak out for what's right and speak out for the people that that can't speak up, so I do have that ability. I have a voice, I have a way to make a difference. So for me to not use that would be unbelievably selfish and for me would not be acceptable. So I was gonna speak up and say, this is not right. This can't happen to me, but more importantly, this can't happen to others and it can't get worse and you can't. You need to have accountability for someone doing this and for it becoming a pattern and this is, someone playing with someone else's life, someone's livelihood. If I was still on tour at the time, and that happened, he could have easily broken bones, and I was lucky enough to be so naive that I thought, this is possibly someone running up to me. I have some idiot friends from high school that w- would very easily would have just run up to me seeing me in the street and giving me a big hug or picked me up or something, and I looked and thought it was that. So my hands, if you watch the video, I'm actually smiling and my hands are down. I've talked to a lot of police officers since then that they say they know people like that or, other, or officers like that, that if I had put my hands up to fight, which is your natural reaction, or tried to run, that it wouldn't have been bumps and bruises that I had. I would have been head smashed against the car. I would, they would have drawn a weapon. Or I thought how lucky I am that my brother wasn't with me because if someone runs up and tackles your brother, he's gonna hit him. And if he hits him, there are four other officers on the scene that were armed. So it could have been a lot worse. So I think about how lucky I am but I also think how much could have gone wrong in that situation for me is the same as it could have gone wrong for anyone else that was in that situation standing there and how much worse it would have gone for most people that didn't think, oh, this is probably someone friendly running at me from across the street. It's 240 pounds coming, you know, basically to tackle me. Most people probably wouldn't have the notion to just smile and laugh at it. So it could have ended a lot worse. So I thought about that and I thought about and I kept you know, many, many nights um, about what could have happened and thought about my kids, thought about how much I'm gonna, how I'm gonna explain it to them when they get old enough to see the video and YouTube lives forever, so they'll they'll see it and they'll know and I'll have to explain to them that daddy didn't do anything wrong, that um, sometimes the, the police are there to protect you, but they make mistakes too, they're human, and um, so I'm gonna have to go through all of that and explain the you know the, the black-white dynamic and all the, the racial components that are there. And, um, probably going to have to happen a little earlier than i would have done it with my kids but um, maybe just like a lot of other things in my life i try to turn anything negative into a positive we've gotten a fellowship in new york to help um, fund lawyers to to fight these kind of cases and um, And I'm trying to do everything i can to help with accountability Um, i know being a police officer is about as tough a job as you can have but Um, there are still bad cops out there that need to be held accountable. There's 95 to 98% are good cops and do a job of honor and make the badge proud and the few that aren't um, really tarnish it. And that for me is the ones that need to be held accountable. And maybe they don't, you know, not everyone has the mindset to be a pro athlete. There are people out there that don't have the mindset to be a police officer and they should find a different job. They shouldn't be allowed to have lethal force um, and be able to use it, and, um, and then if they do use it, not be held accountable for that. Um, so that's what I've tried to try to help and try to make a difference that way. I wrote a book about it, and um, it, it definitely changed me in, in so many ways, and just my interactions now, if I see a police officer, it's, it's different. The trust is gone because of what one officer did. Um, And that's why I say they need to be held accountable because they make the job more difficult for a good officer. If someone that's doing the job the right way comes up to me now, and I have fear. That makes me more tense, and then that makes them more tense, and then now our interaction can be much worse just because of what one bad cop did. It makes the job of the good cops uh, more difficult, which is why, in my opinion, the cops that are doing the job the right way are the ones that should be speaking out the loudest about this. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's sort of a tradition, it's sort of a I don't know if you want to call it the old boys club or whatever, the thin blue line, the blue wall of silence. Um, It's just an unwritten rule for them that they're not going to speak up about this. And that's that's the thing for me is the biggest thing that needs to change because the good cops are being harmed by the the few that aren't doing it the right way. And the good cops need to speak up because they're the ones that are going to be harmed. And they're the ones that are going to have more tense encounters, even though they're doing the job the right way.
1: Thanks so much to James for your time, and thanks to you for listening. We're giving you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can use your dreams and make them a reality, and I hope this show can help you. I'm on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review and tell a friend. Tory Show is written by me, Torrey, and produced by Chris Colbert and The Young Turks. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks, because the man can't shut us down.